This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. Today we've got an interview with Cenk Uger, host and founder of The Young Turks. Cenk recently stopped by the CJR offices, and Meg talked to him about everything from the origins of his popular web news network to the rise of the anti-establishment media to what it was like to interview Andrew Breitbart in the pre-Bannon days. Later, I'll be joined by CJR senior staff writer Alex Neeson and senior editor Christy Chisholm to discuss the biggest news stories of the week. Finally, we'll end the episode with some thanks. But first, here's Meg with Cenk. One note, there's some rewiring going on in our studio, so the mic is a little bit fuzzy at times, but it's a great conversation and hope you enjoy it. As host and founder of The Young Turks, you've become one of the biggest voices in progressive news media, but I was pretty surprised to learn that your politics started off a little bit more conservative, so I'm really curious about when that switch happened and why, and then also kind of why the switch from law to journalism. Yeah. Well, the second one's easier. Let me take the second one. All right, start there. Um, Law was really boring, super boring, and has very little impact on the world, and I was practicing uh, the wrong kind of law. So there's a lot of uh, issues What kind of law is that? Uh, corporate officers and directors, liability litigation. I don't okay. even know what that means. Uh, yes. What it means is when um, some of the richest people in the world do really shady things, we were there to help them. And we covered their ass. So it was a terrible job. So I left in seven months. Um, I went to law school here at Columbia. Oh, so uh, your old stomping grounds. It is. And I took a class at the journalism school. I actually loved uh, law school. Um, because it was debating and policy and constitution and really interesting. Uh, But when you go to work as a lawyer, it's a life of drudgery. Uh, Lots of contracts and annoying words that no one else uses in an order that has to be very precise. It's just, ah! Okay, so that, and then I, a friend of mine after I graduated from Columbia asked, it said to me, hey, why don't you take this learning annex course on how to start your own TV show? And I thought, well, that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. How, you can't start your own TV shows. But I was like, all right, it sounds fun. I went. Uh, and a lady back then, this is 95 when I graduated from here, um, and she said, oh, you couldn't uh, go to your local public access station, and by law they must give you one. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, what a country. <laughs> they have to, by law, give you your own TV show. And people are like, yeah, but that's like Wayne's World. It's clownish. And I was like. I don't care. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to impress anyone. I just want to see how it is. So I went and did it. After the first show, I was hooked. I was like, I love this. I just want to do this the rest of my life. So I got out of law firm as quickly as I could and then took my tapes from public access and turned them into audio tapes because at the time the only job you can get was a radio talk show host. And I sent them to 400 stations across the country and I got two part-time jobs out of it. And that's how I got started. And uh, so then in terms of just like the, the political transition, because that's, yeah. I mean, it's 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 pretty remarkable considering that you are one of like the leading voices in kind of the left wing media now. Yeah. So my political transition is one of, uh, of a transition for the country more than it is for me. Um, and the, the country's politics was uh, way more 
progressive uh, and it has become insanely right wing. And when I say the countries, I don't mean the actual human beings that live here. Mm -hmm. They're actually wildly progressive. Uh, I mean Washington and the people in power. So when I was growing up as a liberal Republican in New Jersey, back then, first of all, there were things such as a liberal Republican, which doesn't exist anymore. There was a thing called a moderate Republican, which doesn't exist anymore. And then the other is that the spectrum has moved so far to the right. So me staying relatively close to where I was, uh, I've now become the left end of the spectrum when I was slightly center right when I began. So then for me personally, when do I start voting Democrat? Uh, So 2000 was the first time I voted for a Democratic candidate. That was Al Gore over George Bush. That was, I just looked at the debates and I'm like, one guy's stupid and the other one isn't. And so. So it was more like the Republican Party left you rather than you left the Republican Party. Mm, I think that's exactly right. Is that a good way to phrase it? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So uh, just kind of going, refocusing back on uh, just the Young Turks. Um, So you mentioned the Young Turks started in 2002 as a radio program. And it's grown to a web series with, I believe, more than 3 million subscribers, which is pretty remarkable. How did it first make the transition to the web? And why do you think it resonated with so many, especially young news consumers? So we started radio, but only because we had to. Don't get me wrong. I loved radio. Uh, <laughs> and and I loved going in my T-shirt and my hat and not having to worry about producing graphics or video elements. Um, and that, those are some of my fondest memories, but I always knew that we were going to do online video. I knew back in 98, um, that we were, that online video was going to be TV. So the minute we could, that we were technologically capable of doing it, we started. So we started in 05, uh, December 12th of 2005. Um, on YouTube? Uh, no, no, at that point, just on our website. Our website. And a couple of months later, we found this new thing called YouTube that had just launched, Um, But YouTube made all the difference. It took away the gatekeepers. And once you did that, it allowed us direct access to to our viewers. And that changed everything. And what's been the evolution of the program since those early YouTube days? Um, First of all, we've gotten a lot better production quality. Uh, (laughs) We had these giant microphones in front of our face. And it's just like we do right now. And the audience said, Move the mics. Hey, knuckleheads, go move them. And then they got more specific. Hey, you should get a lavalier mic. And then another guy was like, I'm an audio engineer. This is a, given the kind of room you appear to be in, this is the lav mic you should get. And so they helped build the show. And they said, you should get high ceilings so you could put lights in. We're like, oh, right, lights. <laughs> okay. Like it's really small things uh, yeah. that, make, that make a broadcast a broadcast. That's right. And so... Um, we began to adjust technically, but much more important was we started building the connection to the audience. And so what I tell folks all the time is we're not the Young Turks, you're the Young Turks. So together we are going to do this change. We're going to do this revolution. Uh, And that's why we named it the Young Turks, because it's young progressives overthrowing the established system, which is exactly what we want to do. And I mean, this year, there's been a resurgence in kind of the partisan and anti-establishment media, a lot of it coming from the far right, the Breitbarts, the Fox Newses of the world. But there's also places like Crooked Media and Chapo Trap House and, of course, the Young Turks, uh, those with an obvious, you know, unabashed progressive bent. So it's a kind of a pretty good time to be an outsider in the news media world. So I'm wondering, how are you capitalizing on this present moment? Yeah, 
well, we're going to come up with a new slogan here. Uh, we'll break news. I'll say it on your show first. Great. Okay. <laughs> um, we're the home of the revolution. So, you know, crooked media, good guys, uh, a little bit to the right of us. Chapo, fascinating uh, work that they're doing. They're uh, definitely to the left of us. Um, but we've been home base for the revolution before there was a revolution. Uh, and and a lot of people grew up at this point watching us. Uh, and we've been saying from day one that, unfortunately, uh, there's systemic corruption. And we've legalized bribery in this country. And that's the cancer uh, that's eaten away at our democracy. So when we say revolution... I'm very specific about it. So this system is fundamentally corrupt. Unfortunately, it's made America one of the most corrupt countries in the world, if not the most corrupt. Uh, and so if you're a progressive and you want change on climate issues, on guns, on wages, uh, on health care, you're not going to get any of it because our politicians are bought unless we get the money out and we stop the private financing of our elections, we will lose on all those issues. And and once we end the corruption, you're going to be shocked at how progressive this country is. And I mean, one of the ways that you're you know, trying to tackle some of these issues is through kind of blurring the lines between journalism and activism a little bit, um, especially with the formation of your new super PAC, Wolfpack, in uh, the formation of a more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Can you talk a little bit about uh, why you decided to launch that earlier this year? So we don't blur the lines a little bit between uh, journalism and activism. Uh, we blurred a lot, uh, and we're proud of it. So there's a couple of different layers uh, to what we do. First, we give people the facts. Uh, but it's really important pe- for people to understand uh, because the only perspective, not the only, but the predominant perspective of journalism we've had in this country for the last couple of decades is from the right wing, places like Fox News. And they lie all the time. So people have not confused perspective journalism with lying. And that is not the case. You're supposed to start out with the facts no matter what kind of journalism you're doing. So once you explain the facts to people, then we give an analysis. And it is fair to call that a perspective or commentary or opinion. It's perfectly fine. And yes, we're definitely progressive. Uh, And then the third thing we do is we then say, now here's how you can change it. And we're going to participate in that change. That makes other folks in the media lose their minds. Um, but I actually think they got tricked. I think that the standards of journalism got moved on them uh, and on purpose. And so the reason why um, the rest of the media doesn't do activism or doesn't take an opinion is because it is in protection of the status quo. Because if you do something, it might bring you change. And status quo does not want change. So it teaches the wolf blitzers of the world, whatever you do, remain a robot, remain neutral. So I know that that sounds harsh. So let me break it down. Um, So I think print journalists do a great job and are really important. And I think that there's not only a place for just objective journalism, I think it's essential. So I don't want the New York Times to have an opinion. Um, I've got an opinion. I don't need their opinion. I need their facts. So your criticism is just specifically broadcast news, not kind of the other mediums out there. That's right. Okay. Uh, So that's why I really have to clarify. I'm talking about the wasteland of television. And so although, you know, with print journalism, I, I should note there is one thing that is an important distinction that sometimes gets lost. The difference between neutrality and objectivity. 
Those are two different standards, and and unfortunately, a lot of times people think the right standard is neutrality, and it isn't. That's a that's a trick. Uh, neutrality is the Lakers played the Spurs. The Lakers say they won. The Spurs say they won. I guess we'll never know. Uh, objectivity is no. They played, and Lakers won 100 to 85. Don't don't take me wrong that I don't want that. I do. The right wing wants to destroy the media. We want to make it better. Gotcha. So, uh, uh, so how how do you want to make it better? There also has to be space in media for not just perspective, but for change, for activism. Yeah, on the right and the left and the middle, whatever you want. Uh, you, it's a weird thing to get into the news because you love the news, but then make a loyalty oath to never change anything in the world for the positive. I'm, I'm well, just reporting it, but well, hey. I, w- I will say that some some believe that by putting the information out there, that's kind of an act in and of itself. That is true, and that's why I just said I like objective journalism and I think it's essential. So uh, all I'm asking for is, and this is a really funny way to put it, but to not be judged. Mm-hmm. So the people feel like I am attacking. I'm in, in reality counterattacking because what we get all the time is, you shouldn't do that. You know, you shouldn't be active. What are you doing trying to change the world? Shut up already. Just be neutral, right? I've heard that my whole career. So, no, no, I'm not going to do that. There is also a place for people to say, I care about the news and I want this to be a better place and I'm going to fight to make it a better place. And guess, And by the way, my audience loves that. And that's how we got to be as big as we are because online what works uh, is authenticity. So if you actually care, they'll reward you. If you're a fake, a phony, they hate you and they won't reward you and they won't watch you. And we say online, and the only difference between online and TV is there's no gatekeepers online. So on on TV, they reward the phonies. Online, where there's no gatekeepers, the audience, if you let them, if you took away the gatekeepers on TV, they'd also reward authenticity. Wow, shocking. It turns out that humans like other real humans. That's crazy. (laughs) Wow, blowing my mind. I know that you have strong opinions about the traditional news media, but are there specific news organizations that you've drawn inspiration from over the years? Um, Any journalists or programs, networks, publications? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, McClatchy Newspapers does a wonderful job. The Guardian does a great job. I think First Loka has done terrific work. But when you look at some of the traditional magazines like New Yorker and Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone back in the day, some of the best things I've ever read are in those papers. Recent story in the New Yorker about Purdue Pharma. Oh, that was so great. Oh, it was yeah. it was so so great. That is journalism at its best. And so to give it, see because not only did they give you the facts, they gave you context, not perspective, but context. And it was just brilliant article. So it's almost all in print. Um, so we can all agree that print journalism is alive and well. <laughs> yes, despite what the naysayers say. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, Keith Oberman on TV, to give uh, TV a smidge of credit, um, I think he changed things a, a lot and for the better. Uh, I'm not a fan of his. Uh, we we know each other a tiny bit and we don't get along. Uh, but I think what he did for the country was important and I appreciate it. Which is, which is what? What when do you think he contributed? So people don't remember, but before Keith started doing the special comments about George Bush, uh, TV was 100% conservative. 
uh, it was Fox News and everyone who else copied Fox News. And CNN and MSNBC also copied Fox News. They fired every progressive uh, that was on the air. Phil Donahue spoke out against the Iraq War, gone. Ashley Banfield, gone. Ventura even, gone. Uh, and so uh, when uh, Keith Olbermann did his first special comment and had an opinion about Bush, it, it it's not overstating it too much to say that it began to change the world. Uh, it certainly changed the media landscape on television and started to balance out um, perspectives a little bit better. So there have been some shining lights on TV. I've also read that you you dismiss being called the Breitbart of the left. Do you see the Young Turks as a counterpoint to the Breitbarts of the world or more of a corrective to traditional broadcast media like CNN, MSNBC, Fox News? So Breitbart is a blip. Um, it's hot right now because Donald Trump is the last gasp of the angry white man. And that's what Breitbart represents. But they're trying to build an online audience uh, appealing to angry 75-year-olds. And it is not a winning strategy. So Breitbart happens to be hot today, but they won't be and they won't last. Uh, and that's not our battle. Uh, they'll come and they'll go. And others have come and gone. Um, so just to just to push back a little bit on that, a lot of the readers do skew young. I mean, I don't know if that influences kind of the longevity question at all for you. So in the old days, um, people used to think, oh, you know, there's a lot of young kids who are liberal and they grow up and they pay taxes and they become conservative. Nowadays, I think it's the opposite. There's some young kids who grow up thinking that libertarian is cool and hating other people is radical and neat. Um, and then they grow up and they're like, oh, I was such a jerk. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, I've now seen that happen. My bad. <laughs> yeah, totally. I've seen it happen over and over again. People who were furious in Gamergate and then got a girlfriend and it was like, what was I thinking? That was really weird. Sorry. Um, so, and 80% of millennials are progressive. So, you know, they're really, they're so small compared to what we've done, mm -hmm. but people understandably are seduced by it, the mainstream media is, because they have the ear of the president. So I get it. I get why they they talk about it disproportionately, but it really is disproportionate. I think that our target is really the establishment uh, of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And so, and I think that almost everyone on TV uh, is part of that establishment and enables them. So... You know, sometimes I get frustrated that uh, we don't get much coverage on TV. But to be fair, given what I've said about them, <laughs> I guess it's somewhat understandable. But so even though you and Breitbart are polar opposites politically, you do align in terms of the anti-establishment path. So I'm curious, like, is there anything that you've, you've learned from Breitbart over the last couple of years since it's had this, you know, huge surge in the American uh, public? No, not no. a damn thing. <laughs> uh, in fact, and I don't know that this is a good thing, it's probably a mark of shame for me, but Andrew Breitbart, before he passed away, uh, did an interview with me on Current TV. It was one of the last interviews he ever did. And he said before the interview that uh, he, they were partly inspired by us because we were, we, we were around before Breitbart was, and we were doing amazing radical things uh, and getting rid of the gatekeepers and fighting against the establishment. So I'm sorry. 
<laughs> so what you're saying is you are to blame for Breitbart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Andrew and I went back and forth on that. So he, he did say that, which I guess is a nice of him to say that we influenced him. Um, but he also claimed that uh, he started me because he started. He was part of the folks who started Huffington Post. And, and I was one of the first bloggers on Huffington Post. That was his claim for starting me. So you interviewed Andrew Breitbart before Breitbart became a household name then. So what was that like? <clears throat> he was a showman. He was an actor. And uh, and I objected to that. So Andrew admitted in that last interview that when he went to go at, uh, rile up a crowd at Occupy, then he made up things about them. And uh, it's because he thought it was good theater and he wanted to rile them up. And he was an actor in that play. But I did a piece uh, right after he died, so just a couple of weeks after that interview, and I said, I, at the end of the day, as people say, he was an interesting character in our national play and give him credit for that. I can't give him credit because it's not a play. It's real, and it affects millions of lives. And he was a bad actor um, and, and did harm. Um, and so, no, I don't give him credit. I don't give Bannon credit. Uh, I don't care how good at they are at their so-called game. Uh, in reality, they have hurt millions and millions of people. Um, so whether you know Trump likes it or not, he's kind of become a boon for a lot of the news media. What's been the most significant impact of his presidency on the work that you guys do at the Young Turks? So on election night, uh, our subscriber numbers went up 15 percent. Uh, so... That's uh, significant. A- after uh, he got elected, uh, we raised money from the audience to hire investigative journalists, and we uh, raised $2 million from the audience. So that's significant. In terms of view counts, um, we both care and don't care about that. Luckily, we have enough views that we don't have to be worried about any particular video. We don't feel pressure to do more Trump stuff. We know that it does slightly better than, than non-Trump stuff. Uh, but it really depends on the story, and, and there's so many different factors. So last month, you launched a new division dedicated to investigative journalism called the Young Turks Investigates. So unlike your other channels, this new one won't feature any opinion or analysis, though, of course, your network isn't politically neutral. Um, so with that in mind, I'm curious if you could walk us through the reporting process for what you're calling, quote, objective journalism at the Young Turks? You know, what does, I guess, what does objectivity mean for a network that is so far left? Yeah. Our investigative team is separate from the rest of the company in that sense. So um, they do their own stories. Uh, They uh, stick only to the facts. They don't do opinion. um, And they certainly don't get involved. So as I told you before, I think that there is value in that. It's not the heart of what we do. And as I explained before, all I want is space to be able to do what we do. But uh, I think objective journalism is really important. Why did we feel a need to open up that branch and let them run with objective journalism? Uh, Because, again, television, not print, uh, they don't want to investigate anything for fear of what they might find out. So you, you you leverage the original reporting through the Young Turks Investigates now on the other programs, I'm assuming? Yes. So if they've got a great story, 
we would take that story just as a, we would a story out of The Intercept or The Washington Post. For example, Washington Post had a great story about the drug companies and how they defeated regulation of pill mills. So we break that story down and we give it further context and we applaud that story. So if our guys did a story that was as, you know, in, in that vein, we would do the same. Do you consider yourself a journalist, an activist, none of the above, all of the above? Yes. To which one? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess all of the above. Um, And when I first started, I did not consider myself a journalist. Um, I thought I was just a talk show host. Um, And uh, but given what the media did during the Iraq war and everything I've seen since then, I think it's fair to call myself a journalist, um, but one that's clearly a prospective journalist. And, and and yes, an activist. And yes, I think you're allowed to do all of the above. Well, thank you so much, Jank Uger, for uh, being on The Kicker this week. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now we turn to the news of the week. We begin, as we often have here over the past six weeks, with new revelations about powerful men in the media accused of committing sexual harassment. On Monday, the New York Times suspended star reporter Glenn Thrush after Vox reported on his history of taking advantage of younger journalists. And the Washington Post was the first to the story on Charlie Rose, who was accused by eight women of sexual harassment. He was fired on Tuesday by CBS, PBS, and Bloomberg. Christy, it's been six weeks since the New York Times first reported on Harvey Weinstein, and the revelations seem to keep coming. So where are we in this larger story? (laughs) Has it only been six weeks? Um, It feels like it's been six months. Um, Where are we in the larger story? That's a great question. I think the narrative is shifting a little bit right now to not just all the revelations about harassment and specific behavior by specific men in like different media organizations and in every industry ever. Um, I think it's shifting a little bit away from specific accusations and more to the broader implications of what that behavior means um, in the workplace and I guess in society in general. One of those things is that, you know, women, when they are harassed, often stay quiet or they just leave their job instead of pursuing charges or staying around with a harasser. Yeah. One thing I've noticed in seemingly every one of these stories involving multiple allegations is that there's at least one woman, whether identified by name or not, who has left the industry entirely after being subjected to assault or harassment by a male power figure. I mean, I think one of the, um, like, as we start to examine the consequences of this behavior beyond the obvious trauma um, of the experience and then the repeat trauma every time a new story comes out and every time a woman is called and asked for comment, is looking at the, like, lost potential and, you know, what stories are women reporters not pursuing or not getting support from we're not asking for help on uh, what meetings are they being excluded from. We had, you know, uh, Pike Pence's policy that he doesn't do meetings with women uh, by himself in the same room. And I think we can imagine a scenario in journalism where editorial meetings, project planning, um, these sort of really ambitious projects that make people's careers uh, that maybe women are being excluded from either 
a self-exclusion for fear uh, or men deciding that instead of dealing with culture, a culture of harassment, that they're just going to not include women at all. Absolutely. It's like the it's like the um, like the golfing buddy kind of scenario, but like in a, in a much more like detrimental fashion. It's like instead of not being invited to go along golfing with the boss because you're not a dude or you're not going to the cigar bar or to the strip club or whatever, like with the boss, which is something that women were have like historically been excluded from in the workplace. Now it's an issue of like women not even feeling that's comfortable or safe being in like a in a closed area with one of their employers. Yeah, and we saw that power dynamic you talk about in the names that surfaced this week with Charlie Rose, for example, who had his own production company that employed a bunch of women and was a small organization with no HR outfit, a similar situation with Glenn Thrush at Politico in the New York Times, in that women who were out at parties after work, as a, is a big part of this industry, felt like he was someone with power at those companies and they couldn't speak up. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it with Glenn Thrush uh, in particular that there's journalism is about who you know. And so particularly for young reporters, for young women reporters, um, we are always trying to meet the right people. And, um, you know, the the way it works is if you meet the right people, then they help open the right doors for you. And so part of the uh, sort of gravity of like the accusation after accusation um, is that all of these people that, you know, reporters have looked up to and have really relied on to start their careers. You know, it, it, it's the real the reality is that these are not always safe people and not always safe spaces. And so it's sort of like where what do we do now when we can't rely on these sort of industry giants to help us in these ways, um, how do we get started? Because we know that you know we're underrepresented pretty much by every metric across the industry. So, yeah. and something that we have to keep in mind too. I mean, like we hear more about what's happening in the media world, and now like on Capitol Hill, and then of course in Hollywood. And these are all industries that are very much in the public eye in one way or another. So you have fame to some extent and different gradations, right? So that's why. We get all of the breaking news alerts about these people whose names we know and like the crimes they've committed. But, you know, we have to remember that this happens in every single industry to some extent, every workplace. And also something that, you know, we're talking about a lot in the newsroom um, at CJR recently is just not that not just like overt harassment charges, but you have to think about how women are diminished in the workplace, even if it's not like through like overt harassment, through um, condescension or belittlement or, you know, just not being taken seriously in the same way that men are taken seriously. Like that does a a huge amount of emotional harm to professional women also. Yeah. And I think one of the other conversations that sort of floats through this is, you know, when women are propositioned for a date or, or, or something like that, uh, f- you know, by men in their newsrooms. And, and perhaps there was not an overt assault. There was no harassment, um, but there was just like a woman deciding to say no um, and, and, and exercising her right to say no. And then men who are in positions of power then become sort of obstructionist in, um, in a professional sense in that they're not taking ideas seriously or maybe they had sort of hinged help with a story or a project or something on the idea that you were going to go out with them. Uh, and so that's another way where uh, 
women sort of can feel pressure to say yes to those things because they're like, well, if I say no and then he gets pissed off at me, it's going to make my life at work really difficult. Um, and so that's sort of what are these are sort of the things that we're trying to gauge with the survey that we're doing, uh, where we've asked uh, staff journalists and freelance journalists to write in about their company's sexual harassment reporting policies and how they understand them, whether they understand them, and for freelancers, the policies of the companies that they work for. Absolutely. Yeah. So if anyone who's listening is not aware yet that we're doing this, CJR has been conducting a survey the past three weeks or so, I guess, on HR policies in newsrooms, like Alex just said. And um, the surveys are still open. So if you are interested in filling one out as an employee of a newsroom or as a freelance journalist, you can go to cjr.org slash survey. So we're trying to see what policies are actually in place in newsrooms, how aware people are of those policies, how comfortable they feel with them, whether they actually make a difference, all those questions. And the first step is just gathering data. Right. So again, it's cjr.org slash survey. If you are a journalist listening to this, whether you're in a newsroom or a freelancer, we would appreciate you sharing your story. There's the opportunity to remain anonymous and not be contacted, but we're trying to gather as many of those stories as we can. For our second topic of news this week, we turn to the business side of the industry. The LA Times is in the midst of a unionization push attempting to change the paper's long history of anti-union activity, and Vox Media staffers also announced their plans to unionize last week joining a long list of digital outlets that includes Vice, HuffPost, Gawker, which is now Gizmodo Media Group, and Slate. All of those places have recently organized. And watching this, I'm interested in why this push is happening now, especially at digital media companies. I mean, I think the turbulence that the industry has been experiencing for a long time obviously has a lot to do with it. Um, But one thing that sort of strikes me is that the recent wave of support for for organizing has come at these younger digital outlets that are staffed by young people. And I think, you know, journalism has been hard to work in and there are certainly very real financial ails uh, to like business models. But I think that um, young people working at these uh, like digital only outlets, I think that those struggles have sort of been pitted against us and and kind of uh, we've all been so eager and like afraid to lose our chance to to work in journalism that I think uh, we had built this tolerance for very uh, of you know being tolerant of a lack of very basic worker protections um, and I think that tolerance is is fading away um, and and maybe it's a an attempt for some kind of uh, structure and stability in a really fast changing industry. And one of the only ways that we can do that um, is through organized labor. Yeah. I mean, I think that point you make about these startup companies in a lot of cases, right? Places like Vox, uh, like Vice, at least from their digital side, um, maturing on some level, right? That just a decade ago, the internet as a, a place where journalism got done was still kind of a an, either an afterthought for legacy places or a, a new frontier for digital-only places. And we are seeing people and organizations grow up kind of in real time. And we're in this period where journalists at those outlets are starting to think, hey, we can't get by on just being excited about what we're doing and being willing to work at one in the morning to you know figure out the CMS that's all janky. We have to. Um, <laughs> janky. Oh, I love that We word. have to provide some protections for ourselves and kind of act like a mature industry. Yeah, I think it's sort of a demand that 
you know, we are growing up and it's and the companies have to also grow up as well. Um, and, and that we're not going to be willing to sacrifice, you know, all of the different things that make up our quality of life and, and the way that our personal lives are really tangled up in, in our work lives. We're, we're no longer willing to sacrifice those things. And I think that's can explain why a lot of the um, support for union drives at, at some of these younger outlets is driven by young people. I mean, I think there's also something to be said about like you're talking about the maturation of these digital outlets and Part of that maturation is that when a lot of them started, you know, as a digital upstart, you usually have investor funding, you have all of like the startup perks, you have a very different kind of company atmosphere. Like if you survive and you get past that initial like investor phase, then you need to actually start making a profit, figuring out how to do that. And a lot of things change for employees at that stage also. So, you know, they need to have good insurance, they need to have stability, they need to feel like they're not going to be fired you know, at the whim of whatever. Of um, a billionaire who decides he doesn't want a union. Of a billionaire, exactly. I think yeah. one of the other things, um, you know, conversations about the longstanding, ongoing um, dearth of people of color and women in newsrooms, mm-hmm. um, those conversations have become louder and louder. Um, and I think at outlets, when when outlets do make cuts and you start to see who is leaving and you kind of really examine the turnover at different places, it's often women leaving and it's often people of color leaving. And so I think, um, especially as billionaires <laughs> buy up news outlets, really the only way for a newsroom um, to have some sort of like formal say in making di- you know making changes in a newsroom that might uh, improve retention of these underrepresented groups is through a union. Alex, you also made a good point in the office just when we were talking earlier today about how unionization may in some way be a response to what's happening politically this year, too. Mm -hmm. I also sometimes wonder whether, you know, through negotiating a contract, for example, um, people who are expected not to have public opinions get to have opinions about some of the same topics that that we write about and that we cover, you know, as part of our job. So, you know, while Congress is fumbling its way through um, health care reforms. One of the, you know, maybe we can't go outside and participate in a march or write on Twitter about sort of what we think about those things. But, you know, we can sit across the table from our companies and say, uh, this is what we need from you as far as health care. And, and, and so in some ways, it's kind of a, like a, a way for us to participate in like a way that's acceptable by the standards of the rules of our industry. Yeah. And of course, hanging over all of this is as you mentioned earlier, the financial picture for the industry, mm-hmm. uh, which is, in case, you know, if you're a new listener to the program, it is not bright. Um, <laughs> and it's it's not bright for not just, you know, legacy print outlets, uh, but also, as we're seeing in the past week, for digital outlets. So I think that the financial picture is making journalists look around and say, we can see the writing on the wall, and we do want to have a voice in how we're treated. And be prepared for a worst case scenario, um, because at certain places, the reality is that that is coming, whether it's in the form of major cutbacks or even the complete shuttering of, of an outlet. So this is something that we will continue to watch. I expect that Vox will not be the last publication to announce uh, a union drive, and we'll keep watching and uh, reporting on it at cjra.org. We've got a great piece up about the LA Times union push that we'll put in the show notes. We're ending this week with some gratitude. In CJR tradition, we asked our colleagues what they were thankful for in journalism and media this year, and here's what they said. 
this year. I'm thankful for all of the different media organizations that have adequately kept up with the news cycle. For lots of reporting on sexual harassment. For the incredible reporters all over the world outside the US. This year, I am thankful for having a job in journalism. <laughs> Longer, deeply researched and fact-based stories that take a long time. This year, I'm thankful for the fact that the worst First Amendment infringements we imagined at this time last year haven't come to pass. For working in a newsroom full of badass women. For the Trump bump in subscriptions and revenue for magazines. For having survived a full year since the election. And, and seeing journalism revived. People care about what we do now. This year, I am thankful for CJR. And of course, we're also thankful to you, our listeners. Thanks for kicking it with us this week and all year. Please check out all the great content we've got up at cjra.org, and we'll see you next week.